All right. 2 Samuel 14 is where we're at this morning in our sermon. If you'll turn there with me, you can find this on page 247 of the Pew Bible. Uh, as we continue in this series on 2 Samuel, we're looking at David's life. And recently, as y'all know, there's been some super heavy things. And today, it's not a great story, but however, it does give us a little window into some positive things that we can begin to talk about in terms of how to heal from some of the things that we've read about in previous weeks. And so um, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I tried uh, throughout the week to figure out a way to edit it so I wasn't reading for that long, but um, I think it's just best to just go all in this morning. Y'all ready? There's a lot of dialogue in the story. Don't get lost in it. Just remember as you're listening who's talking to who, um, and that way you can follow the story as it moves ahead. All right, let's begin. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face on the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring back his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. 
And the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. So then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said to Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Why is maintenance so hard? Uh, some of y'all, your whole work is a work of maintenance. You get up every day and you go to work and that's what your job is, to maintain things. That's hard, isn't it? But all of us, even if we don't have that job, we know every single thing in our lives requires some form of maintenance. Why? Why can't you just let things lie and it will be okay? They may even get better. Why can't you do that? Because we live in a world where things that are left alone break apart. They break down. The dust comes. The rust comes. The corrosion. Uh, you have to constantly keep up everything from your house to your car to your clothes to your appearance. And yes, indeed, to your relationships. If they're not going to fall like the relationships that we read about in this passage. Now, when 
something breaks because you haven't maintained it, what do you do? The word in the Bible is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. And this, ch- this chapter is all about that. Hopefully you didn't get lost in the dialogue. There's a whole lot of my Lord the King and your servant says, O King. And there's a whole lot of that going on. Honorific language. Hopefully you didn't get lost. The main point is this. There is an attempt by Joab to bring reconciliation between David and his son Absalom because Absalom has killed his brother. That's a good attempt. But yet the attempt ends up empty in the end. It's a failed attempt even though it looks good. And so this morning we're going to get a chance to talk about three things if you look at your bulletin. We're going to see first of all the need for reconciliation. Okay, that's at the very beginning of the passage. Then we're going to see the counterfeit of reconciliation. The ways that reconciliation gets faked. And then lastly, we're going to see the heart of reconciliation. What what would it look like? What would it take to actually reconcile a broken relationship? All right, let's look together. First of all, at the need for reconciliation. In verses 1 to 3, if you'll look at that again, Joab looks pretty good in those verses. In fact, we should give him a whole lot of credit. Because it says, Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, his son. Joab had paid attention to his friend and his boss, David. And he knew that David's heart was wanting to reconcile to his son, but he didn't know how to do it. In fact, there's a really good reason why he didn't know how to do it. His son was in legal jeopardy. His son had killed Amnon in cold blood after plotting it for two years. And although we may have sympathized with Absalom because of how bad a dude Amnon is and was, it still wasn't right for Absalom to do this. You see, the sin of murder does not cover up the sin of abuse and sexual assault like we saw last week. You can't cover up any sin with any other sin. That's not the way sin goes away. And yet Absalom had tried to do that. He put himself in legal jeopardy. He put his dad in legal jeopardy, and he actually put the whole kingdom in jeopardy because this is not just any family. This is the royal family. I mean, imagine this morning if Prince Harry killed Prince William at a state dinner and then took off back to Los Angeles. And that's what we're talking about here. What does Charles do? What does Harry do? How could that ever be repaired? Could Harry ever go back home to London? Would there ever be peace again? That's the kind of crisis we're talking about here. And yet Joab, of all the people, is the only one who's able to look at it and see that for what it is. Here you have a broken relationship that must be repaired if there's going to be peace. If there's going to be peace in the family, if there's going to be peace in the nation, if there's going to be a peace among God's people... There's got to be some kind of attempt to come back to one another between David and Absalom. Uh, Matthew Henry in his great old commentary on the Bible says that Joab takes up the good office of peacemaker in verses 1 to 3. He takes up the good office of peacemaker. And the Bible tells us that every Christian is called to the same office, peacemaker. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers because peacemakers will be called the sons and daughters of God. You know why? 
Why do people look at someone who makes peace and say, that's a chip off the old block? That's a person exactly the way God is. Why? Because God in the gospel is doing nothing but making peace. And as we read earlier in Romans 5, he makes peace with his enemies. He makes peace with his banished ones. God is able to devise means to bring the banished one back home and to make peace with all his people, though they have rebelled against him, though they have offended him to high heaven, and though they have also hurt one another in unimaginable ways. God is able to do something about that to remove the offense and to come back into a peaceful relationship. The Bible says if we have had peace made with us, with God, we ought to go out and be peacemakers. Uh, We ought to be reconciled reconcilers as Christians. Now, I've I've got to give a caveat to that, a little side note. Because there are some people, and you may be here, and you're carrying a burden of not being reconciled to someone in your life. And I want you to know that reconciliation is always two-sided. Okay? And we'll get more into that in just a minute, into very, really great detail on that. But for right now, don't carry a weight. If you're a Christian, you have, in all, with all that depends on you, tried to make peace. The Bible says you've done what you need to do. And that now the time is to wait and to pray and possibly to separate yourself from that person, but to wait and pray that that person would come back. Because it's a two-way street. You cannot reconcile with someone who doesn't want to be reconciled. Right? So I don't want that weight to sit on somebody unnecessarily. But if you're holding a grudge, that's not being a reconciled reconciler. If you're fantasizing about revenge... That's something that has to be addressed. If you're trying to trade crime for crime or sin for sin, that's something that must be addressed because God says, my sons, my daughters are peacemakers because I'm a God of peace. I've made peace at the cost of my son. And so those that I've adopted into my family, I want them to have costly commitments to peace in their lives. This morning... Let's just give Joab some credit and let's say, how can we be like Joab, at least in verses 1 to 3? How can we look at our lives and see relationships that need to be worked on and repaired because they're broken, either our fault or their fault, and we need to move towards them in some way, at the very least, with prayer and confession, so that the Lord, you never know, the Lord may turn their heart to and there may be a repair of the breach. That's the first thing, the need for reconciliation. Joab looks good in the first three verses. However, point two, the counterfeit of reconciliation. Uh, Joab does not look very good in verses 4 to 24 because Joab's method of, uh, of obtaining reconciliation is not the appropriate method. And that's very possible in your life, too, in my my life. We can want reconciliation so bad that we're willing to cut very critical corners to try to secure it. But normally, cutting corners to secure reconciliation is actually securing something that's actually not reconciliation. It just looks like it or feels like it. Notice how how Joab, in verse 4, has called this woman, and he's given her words to say, 
But the words that he sent this woman to go say to the king are not at all equivalent. The story that she tells, as wonderful as the story is, and as heartwarming and as heart-wrenching as it is, is not equivalent to what happened with Absalom and Amnon and David. And so what's going on is, is Joab is sending a story that actually has the effect of muddying the moral waters so that David will compromise and achieve a reconciliation at little cost. And we all have to be aware of that happening in our lives all the time when we're trying to work on relationships or repair them. We get really hasty, don't we? You know, I, I know, and maybe you can relate to this. Sometimes I just wish simply saying I'm sorry and a hug will fix it all. Does it? Okay, spouses, does it? <laughs> Not always. Not always. We often want it to. We want to say, hey, I said I was sorry. What's wrong? I kissed you on the forehead. It takes more than that. Beware of haste, especially if you're the one who has offended the other. If you're the one who's offended the other, it is not your job to speed it up. It's your job to let them, you come humbly and let them lead you along as, as together you work it out. If, if you're the offender, and if you're the offended, don't speed it up either. Give, give yourself and them space to actually fully confess, to make a full admission of what has happened, and to fully express a heart that is broken over what has happened. Don't hurry it up. Because when we hurry it up, we settle for something that appears like reconciliation, but it's not. Something that feels like reconciliation, but it's not. You see, reconciliation is not about feelings alone. And it's not about appearances alone. Later on in the story, Absalom is going to come and bow before his father all the way down to the ground. And his father is going to lay a kiss on his head. And we look at that and we think, man, Joab did it. The prince has come back home. Everything is happy in David's house. And then you read chapter 15, verse 1. You might want to look at it if you have your Bible. I mean, look at it. 15.1. The kiss of David hadn't even dried from Absalom's forehead. And what does Absalom do? He got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him so that he could take over his father's kingdom. The kiss wasn't dry and my man went out and bought a tank and began to assemble an army so that he could start a coup against his dad. Was that reconciliation? Oh, it was a great, it was a great photo op. And it may have made everybody feel a little bit better. But it did not actually bring the two parties back together in a relationship. And we're really good at that. And Satan loves when we're good at that. Because Satan loves, he's totally fine with religion and reconciliation. It just looks good. Satan's fine with it. He has no problem if it's just appearances. He hates the heart being yielded to God, which is what God's after. And so as long as he can get the photo op, he's good. As long as he can get us to clean up the house. Have you ever done this where you cleaned up the house for a guest, but really you just stuffed everything in a closet? Satan's fine with that. 
Because it doesn't actually deal with the sin issue. Sin, as Christians, we know this. Sin is never just wrong done. Sin is wrong done against persons. Right? You hear hear what I'm saying there? Sin is not just mistakes were made. Sin is always very personal and relational. It's, first of all, relational with God. And then secondarily, it's it's, it's relational between us. And so the repair must be heartfelt and relational. It cannot just be photo ops and good feels. It's got to be real. But in our haste, we will send fake stories and engineer, you know, fake conversations that turn the tables and seek to muddy the waters so that we quickly get to a reconciliation that we're not ready for yet. I mean, just notice the story. She tells this story about how she's a widow. She has two sons. The two sons get into a fight. Uh, By the way, does that ever happen? Two brothers fighting. Uh, They're alone when they fight. Does that ever happen? And and unfortunately, I mean, tragically, in, in this story, it's a fictional story, but in this story, one brother hits the other too hard and the other brother dies. And now everybody in the community is knocking on the widow's door. Bring your other son out so we can kill him. And the widow suspects that they don't really care about justice. Really, they just want to take away her only remaining son so that they can inherit her husband's farm and her husband's inheritance that she was to pass down to her one and only remaining son. This story is not at all morally equivalent to Absalom and Amnon. Not in any way. Um, there's a difference between what we call today involuntary manslaughter, which is what the one brother does to the other, and premeditated, cold, lying in wait, two-year planning, hitman murder, which is what Absalom did to Amnon. It's a big difference. She's trying to muddy the waters. Joab is trying to muddy the waters so that David will compromise on his moral compass once again and give in to sentiment, to good feelings and good photo ops. Somebody might say, well, wait a minute, uh, pastor. Isn't this what Nathan did to David? I mean, I mean, I don't see the difference. Nathan was sent to David with a fake story, remember, about the little ewe lamb that got stolen. And Nathan said, you're the man. And David repented. Isn't this what Joab is doing? Well, he, may, he may be trying to do that, but the two stories are totally different. Let me quote from another commentator who says it better than I could say it anyway. So I'll just quote from him. He says, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings. Okay, so David had committed adultery and he felt pretty comfortable with that, apparently, for a while. He was going to let it pass. He was going to cover it and hide it. Nathan was sent with a story to arouse his conscience against those feelings of compromise. But here, the woman of Tekoa, prompted by Joab, was trying to rouse his feelings against his conscience. So so David, in his conscience, knows that he, as king, he cannot let a murderer just run rampant and go free. Even if it's his own son, he can't do that. His conscience is bothering him. His heart's going out to his son, but he knows that legally he just he cannot fully absolve his son without miscarrying justice. And so this woman is coming with a story to try to get his feelings to trump his conscience. Those are worlds apart. Worlds apart. 
And fake reconciliation always does that. It always tries to get feelings and sentiments to trump God's law and God's moral standards, which can't be changed and can't be altered no matter what you feel or no matter what I feel. This is especially, I think, dangerous today. I was reading an article this week in Wired magazine, which I don't often read, but I I picked up this uh, particular article because it caught my eye. It's a magazine about technology, if you don't know. And the, the article was about how on social media today and in, on YouTube today, so many people, influencers and the rest, are, are adopting uh, the language of psychologists and the language of therapists, and they're using it for everything. Uh, they're using self-help language and ther- therapeutic language for everything in their lives. And, and they're using the words, this was written by a psychologist, they're using the words that they don't even understand in ways that are not even appropriate. And the author, who's not a Christian, said this is terrible because this puts up a wall between people. If everybody who comes against me, it's because they're an abuser or a, you know, a hater and I, I'm always you know, the victim, then I'm never going to be open to listen to anyone telling me the truth when it's not convenient. The author says, and this is directly quoting from her, from her article, making everything therapeutic and psychologizing everything prevents true reconciliation from happening between people. And is that not what we see going on here 3,000 years ago? Where here comes this very drippy, drippy sentimental story that's fake to try to get David to compromise on the truth so that he'll fast-track an easy patch-up with his son. Beware of contrived reconciliation. Beware of putting up your feelings as a wall that no one can cross to get to you with the truth. Feelings are important. We all got them. But they should never be used as a weapon against yourself or others. Beware of appearances. Photo ops aren't always indicative of the heart. And beware of getting in a hurry. You gotta trust God to devise the means of reconciliation. All right, which leads us to our last thing, the heart of it. God does devise the means of reconciliation and they're not the same as ours. They're different than ours. Um, Reconciliation always requires two things. And you may want to write these down if you're wanting to think about it. You might remember them if you don't write them down. But true reconciliation is always achieved with forgiveness and, okay, not or, but and, and repentance. You take either of those ingredients out, you don't have reconciliation. It's not possible. You may have forgiveness on one side and a willingness to reconcile, but the other person, if they don't repent, You can't fully reconcile with that, at least not in every way, because repentance is always required. Uh, Trying to do reconciliation without forgiveness or without repentance is like trying to bake a cake with no flour, right? Or trying to play football with no football. (laughs) Uh, It's just not possible. It's the very heart of what a reconciliation is. And so notice the last verses, starting in verse 25, the way this... Photo op is described. It's, it's really sad. 
because it leaves us with a gaping hole. And it's not because David is not willing to work out some solution for his son. I'm sure David would be willing to work out a solution for his son. Even if it's not total, you know, totally absolving him, he's willing to work something out. And yet, because Absalom is not willing, because Absalom doesn't have an ounce of repentance in him, it can't happen, except in appearances. Notice verse 25. This is beautiful. And you may think, why, why is this even in the story? And, and, the, and the reason why is what I'm telling you. The author wants you to see Absalom is all appearance, nothing good in his heart. Look at what it says. There was in Israel no one to be praised for his handsome appearance like Absalom. Oh, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. We read that and think, man, I want to be that. Right? Sounds great. Who wouldn't want to be described that way? And then verse 26, when he cut the hair of his head, which he did once a year. And I'm particularly jealous of this detail. He cut the hair of his head every year because it started to weigh heavy on him. And this is weird. He waited out every year and announced the weight. And I looked that up. I was like, okay, is this like some type of, did people do this in the ancient world? And as I, as I dug around in all the scholars, no, this was weird even for them. <laughs> to weigh your hair and then to say, hey, this year it's 200 shekels. Wow. And everybody likes it. Wow. Did you see that on the news? Absalom's hair was 200 shekels this year. This guy is obsessed with his appearance, and he's got appearance to back it up. He has what seems like a wonderful family, three sons, and even a daughter named after his wronged and aggrieved sister. She was also, like her mother, beautiful. Everything seemed great on the outside, and yet notice verse 28, Absalom on the inside has no beauty. He calls Joab and says, Joab, give me a meeting with my dad. And Joab doesn't write back. And he says again, Joab, give me a meeting with my dad. Joab doesn't write back. And then he says, hey, go over there and burn Joab's field. Okay, Godfather, right? <laughs> That's what that is. I mean, this man doesn't have the ability in his heart to truly humble himself and repent. Instead, he gets what he wants when he wants to how he wants to, he will torch your barley field to get you to answer his letter. And so when he comes to his dad and kneels down and bows and receives the kiss, it is all show. There is nothing really happening in his heart to reconcile him to his father. And it's proven by the fact we already noted that in the next verse, he goes out and starts a war against David. Listen again to what Matthew Henry says. And I'll remind you, Matthew Henry was writing in the 1600s. Things haven't changed much. He says uh, Absalom uh, was a man more beautiful than anyone else in Israel. But that is a poor commendation for a man that had nothing else in him valuable. Handsome are those that handsome do. Many a polluted, deformed soul dwells in a fair and comely body. Witness Absalom's that was polluted with blood and deformed with unnatural disaffection or hatred to his father and prince. 
In his body there was no blemish, but in his mind there was nothing but wounds and bruises. And boy, does Matthew Henry hit the nail on the head. Absalom, beautiful in appearance, lacked the one most necessary ingredient to a repaired relationship that you have to have. Repentance. The heart work, heart work of saying, this is what I have done, and it was wrong, and I don't want to do it again, and I want to change, and I want to reconcile with you. Whatever it, what, is, what is it going to take to make peace with you? Let me do it. What do I need to pay? Let me do it. That's what could have moved this forward. And the whole history of Israel might have been different, actually, had Absalom had any repentance in his heart. But unfortunately, he had none. And so it's a warning to all of us. If we want to be peacemakers and reconcilers, we have to work on ourselves constantly. We have to do the heart work within ourselves to be prepared for these things when they come. Absalom wasn't prepared. He had nothing but hate in his heart when the time came for it. And you and I can avoid that by keeping short accounts with God. I mean, it is a great practice to confess your sins to God daily. And I would encourage you to do that. And it's not because you're earning your forgiveness by confessing everything to the minuscule detail. It's not that. Your forgiveness is earned only by the blood of Jesus. It's for you... <laughs> To unburden your heart and to release your attachment to those sins and to receive again the cleansing of Jesus' grace and forgiveness when you confess. You need to do that. You also need to keep short accounts with the people in your life. The Bible says when you have something against someone, don't hate them in your heart. Go talk to them frankly. Talk to them frankly. Tell them what's up. Uh, tell them what's up and, help, and talk with them over small things so that when it gets to big things, you're used to doing it. These are ways we can prepare ourselves for real reconciliation to happen. If you're someone who has offended the other person, don't put the weight on the one you've offended to come to you to repent. You go repent. It's actually your responsibility, mainly. You say, well, I don't know if they'll forgive me. It doesn't matter. You need to go repent. And if there's anybody in the room today who not only needs to reconcile with people, but there may be people in the room that aren't reconciled to God, I want to tell you, this is the same way you get reconciled to God. In verse 14, when the woman said, we must all die, we are like water poured on the ground, uh, we cannot be gathered again, but God will not take away life, and he devises means to bring the banished one home so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. What does that mean? God devises means. God has a way for you to be reconciled to him. And it's the same thing. Forgiveness on his side and repentance on yours. God promises full forgiveness. Full. Like far as the east is from the west, kind of full, like buried in the bottom of the ocean full. Like he, it's like God doesn't even remember your sins, kind of full forgiveness. But he does not promise forgiveness to those who won't repent and believe in Jesus. 
In fact, he says the opposite. If you won't repent and you won't believe, you will not be forgiven. And so come to him. Humble yourself. Don't be content with a photo op with God either or with some good feelings because you picked up a few phrases here and there that are inspirational online. Get to the scripture and let the true peace of God speak to your heart through the blood. Through the blood. That influencer online didn't pay for you with his or her blood. Christ did. Let him influence you to true reconciliation. Amen?